0: All right, everyone, let's get started. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Joe Scheiber to give a talk on non invasive positive pressure ventilation. Dr. Scheiber is the first uh, EMIM graduate at University of Maryland, which has had a long, now I guess, long history of EMIM uh, uh, graduates. I am one of them, and 15 years. Um, Joe uh, has pursued many endeavors, starting various emergency medicine programs, um, EMIM program as well, um, and uh, returned, um, because he's a true glutton for punishment, for a surgical critical care fellowship, even though Joe is way beyond qualified to uh, talk on pretty much anything in critical care, as uh, I can attest to, given uh, the fact that I've worked with him. Um, So today, thanks for coming, Joe, and uh, you guys will be hearing a lot from him now that he's here intermittently over the course of the year. So we look forward to it.
1: All right, thank you, Mike. Thank you for the introduction as well as for inviting me uh, to be here and speak. It's always a pleasure to be back at uh, University of Maryland. We're gonna talk on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. It's something that we use a lot but I think we can potentially use it better in the right circumstances and with a little bit more finesse. It can really be a great tool. So we're gonna talk some about respiratory failure, how we use non-invasive as compared to invasive mechanical ventilation, some particular uses in our CHF, uh, COPD, and asthma patients, and then there's a few other indications that we'll discuss briefly how to use it for. And at the end, we'll also discuss using uh, heated high-flow nasal cannula. I'm if people have questions or comments along the way, feel free to just, uh, whatever you want to do, raise your hand or call out, and we can turn this into a little bit of a discussion also. All right. I like the history of medicine because I think it helps to know where we've been, to know where we're going. So, 1936 Lancet article pulmonary plus pressure machine for cardiac and bronchial asthma, was the first reference to using non-invasive ventilation. So everyone knows what bronchial asthma is. Cardiac asthma was a very, very former term for congestive heart failure. So they recognized that people had wheezing and they either called it pulmonary wheezing or cardiac wheezing. So for these patients, he used a Electrolux vacuum machine reversed. So obviously a vacuum suctions on one end and blows out air on the other end, but he did put in uh, instructions to have cleaned it carefully before using it on a patient. So why was this actually really a, kind of a new thing? Well, because we take for granted thinking, well, geez, people are on positive pressure on the ventilators. Why didn't you add positive pressure non-invasively? They weren't on positive pressure on the ventilators. Ventilators up until the polio epidemic of 1952 were negative pressure. And if I made this presentation longer, I can include a lot of photos. Most people know about uh, curitas, the iron lung. Well, for most ICUs, advanced ICUs, they actually had negative pressure rooms. They had entire rooms that the patients were placed in, and their head exited the room on one side so that they could actually eat and receive care, and their bodies were actually up to their neck were within a room that was connected to a bellows system, and the entire room actually was changed pressures, positive and negative pressure. So. It was very different when they started using positive pressure. And the, really, the reason why we had to develop individual ventilators is because the polio epidemic overwhelmed the capabilities of using negative pressure ventilation. So this is where people began actually inserting in the tracheal tubes or tracheostomy tubes. Medical students would bag patients for eight-hour shifts to get them through their their paralysis and their their respiratory failure, and then positive pressure started becoming more recognized. So John Downs, who was an anesthesia critical care physician who invented lots of things, including IMV, APRV, and CPAP. And some people like myself that have been around for a while will remember respiratory therapists still saying, I will go get the Downs flow. And what they were talking about is to bring the CPAP to the patient's bedside, because that was one of the early CPAP generators to be used in the PACU for patients coming out of, typically out of uh, open heart surgery. They would use it for post-op atelectasis. OSA previously had been treated with basically tracheostomies that patients would put in at night and decannulate themselves during the day. And so, as well as a lot of other surgical procedures, and then when they started using home CPAP for OSA, then people started realizing, hey, it's pretty safe, it's pretty easy to use. So then in the 90s, we started to use CPAP for congestive heart failure patients. And it's pretty miraculous that we used to do awake intubations, awake upright intubations on all these congestive heart failure patients because they'd be in frank pulmonary edema. You couldn't lay them down. It would be very fraught with it, with really having the person decompensate, so we would intubate them while they were awake and breathing. You don't see that anymore because CPAP is so effective at reversing acute pulmonary edema. That, plus the standard medications that we would use, would pull these patients back from the verge of, of complete decompensation. So that's kind of the history of what we've used up until now. So what are the goals of mechanical ventilation? If you think what the goals are, then you'll think what the indications are, why it is that we actually want to assist patients with either invasive or non-invasive. So obviously we want to improve gas exchange and we'll talk in a minute about what the criteria for respiratory failure are. We want to assist work of breathing. Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry. The positive next to it is whether we can accomplish that with non-invasive as well as invasive. So, yes, we can improve gas exchange with non-invasive. We can assist work of breathing. For patients that have neuromuscular weakness, we can assist them with invasive or non-invasive. For preventing reversing atelectasis. For decreased ventilatory drive, we don't actually fix their drive, but by assisting their work of breathing, we may, or their weakness, we may be adding something. That's why it's plus minus. You cannot do the same thing with non-invasive. To decrease O2 consumption. Well, by reducing work of breathing somewhat, we actually are improving it, but we cannot take over fully their work of breathing with non-invasive. Airway protection. No, we don't do anything with that non-invasively. So if someone actually has a poor mental status, whether they've had a large stroke, head injury, we're not helping them by non-invasive. And then the same thing, you cannot permit deep sedation or paralysis and using non-invasive because of the same thing. You don't have a full ventilatory drive reestablished and you don't have airway protection. So there's some things that we can match. I wouldn't say match, some things that we can come close to with non-invasive and some things that we cannot. All right, respiratory failure. So in case people, you hear them talking about this, type 1, type 2, and so forth. Type 1, hypoxemic respiratory failure. So PO2 less than 50 to 60. Hypercarbic, PCO2 above 50 with a pH less than 7.32. So that is, obviously, if a patient is in chronic retainer, their PCO2 at baseline may be higher than this, but because they've compensated with renal... Um, compensation holding on the bicarbonate, their pH would be normal. I had a patient that was a chronic CF patient who, who smoked also, if you believe that, and she walked around with the PCO2 of 120. At baseline, her PCO2 was 120 with a normal pH. So when she would get ill, when she would actually have a little bit of an infection you know, acute bacterial bronchitis or PCO2 would go up by 10 points or so, and that would be enough for her to decompensate. But that shows how significant your renal compensation can be. So you do need to have a pH for acute respiratory failure to be low. Mixed, obviously is both. Some people refer to that as post-operative because with atelectasis, you're going to have some degree of hypoventilation, some degree of shunt. So you'll have both elevated CO2 ventilatory failure and hypoxemia. And then class uh, category four, nothing wrong with the lungs, but if you're in severe circulatory shock, you will actually will have respiratory failure based on that. So the pressure volume relationship is kind of a helpful thing to keep in mind, because the two classes of patients that we help a lot with with non-invasive are typically on both ends of the curve. They're on the upper end and the lower end. The lower end of the curve, those are the patients with severe atelectasis, whether it's post-operatively, or they have neuromuscular weakness, and they have they're, they're de-recruited, they have a lot of atelectasis, they're on the low end. Who's on the upper end? COPD, asthma patients that are overinflated. Either one of them, as you see they have to expend a lot of pressure. So changes in pressure, you have to correlate that to work of breathing. They have to do a lot of work to move a small amount of volume. All of us in this room are on the steep part of the curve. We change our intrathoracic, our intrapulmonary pressure by a small amount, and we have a large amount of gas exchange because the airflow comes in, right? You don't think about it, I'm breathing now, (gasps) right? You just actually take a breath and it's quite easy for us. When you're down on the low end, it's very hard to take a breath. Who's had the wind knocked out of them when they were playing sports, right? So what happens there is someone, you know, it's usually someone tackles you or you fall and people pile on and you actually get air pushed out of you below what you would think usually would be your your residual capacity and you are de-recruited and the first couple breaths you try to take feel like you're expending all you can and you're barely moving in the air because you're trying to reinflate a lung that actually is collapsed. So that's difficult. This area, very easy for us to breathe in, and then the recoil of our lungs actually cause airflow out. You don't think about actively expiring. Your airflow just leaves the chest with recoil. But on the lower end or the upper end, you're spending a lot of energy to get any gas exchange. That's how we wanna help these patients with non-invasive. So you think, well, how can one therapy help people on two ends? Well, adding the positive pressure, particularly the CPAP, starts helping recruitment, reestablishing collapsed uh, segments of the lung, atelectasis, starts reestablishing that. On the upper end, because of auto-peeping, same idea, maintaining a, a, a positive expiratory airway pressure, Stents the airways open and allows for complete expiratory flow, or more complete expiratory flow, so the patients do not stay as, as fully hyperinflated. So the same technique helps two different segments of patients to both move them into closer to the normal section of the curve. Okay, everybody have that? Okay. So the pulmonary effects of positive pressure, and this is whether it's non-invasive or invasive, are going to be the same. Recruitment is going to reduce atelectasis and improve lung volume and improve that FRC. You're going to improve your VQ matching by that because you're going to reduce shunt. The one drawback is is that if you are not careful with your use of positive pressure, you may potentially increase dead space. If you're adding more pressure or you're not not so... so, finessed with your use of it, you could potentially increase dead space if you hyperinflate them. So you have to be a little careful of that, and we'll talk about that more. We should be able to decrease auto-PEEP and dynamic hyperinflation in our asthmatics and COPD patients, improving airflow, reducing workload. But the one drawback with non-invasive is that it may worsen secretion clearance. Why? Because you cannot easily Humidify, non-invasive, and the airflow in a patient who is actually not so strong is actually may be worsening their clearance of secretions, the strength of their cough. So there's more net movement of things going inward than outward. It's the easiest way to think about it. So. One big drawback when people get placed on non-invasive and they say, oh, I've placed them on that, I'm not gonna need to do anything for some time period, and then they've failed at 24 or 48 hours and you look at their x-ray and they actually have significant mucus plugging, it's expected, so that's not a good thing to think that you, you don't have to continue to follow on. So how do you increase dead space? Well, just to briefly talk about it, the west zones of your lung, One, two, three, four only adds a very small component. So more blood flow in the bases, less blood flow in the apices. Unfortunately, airflow is is the opposite. So what you do not want to do is if you actually increase alveolar pressure above pulmonary capillary pressure, you can actually convert zone two areas to zone one, turn them into dead space areas, and that's why you can actually make someone's CO2 increasing. You can do that whether it's non-invasive or invasive, if you're not careful with a severe COPD patient, you think your minute ventilation is adequate, that you should be able to improve their CO2, but what you're seeing is their CO2 is rising, their pH is falling, and it's because you actually have higher airway pressures than is needed. So you either need to Decrease airway pressures, make sure that they're not uh, auto-peeping, or if you notice that it's actually because their blood pressure is dropped, their airway pressures may be fine, but if their cardiac output and perfusion of their lung is dropped, then you actually need to do things to reestablish blood flow. The whole idea is if blood flow is less than alveolar pressure, you've created now dead space. Gas flow with no blood flow. That was this image here. If this is shunt, blood flow with no gas flow with, with recruitment, right? That shunt, this is dead space, an inflated alveolar space compressing capillary, so there's no blood flow, okay? Both are bad, neither one is good, and we can make them better or worse with what we do with our ventilation, okay? So the hemodynamic effects of positive pressure are the same for all patients, and they're very predictable. The problem is is that some patients, what you do may help them, and some what you do may hurt them. So let's talk about that. So positive pressure is going to decrease preload. By adding thoracic pressure, your SVC and your IVC are going to be slightly compressed, and so flow back to the right side of the heart is reduced. By adding positive pressure to your, again, through your lung, the RV afterload is increased. With with normal airway pressures, that's not a big deal for most people with normal lungs. If you already have right heart failure, if you have pulmonary hypertension at baseline, it can be devastating to add any extra RV afterload. You do get some shift of the intraventricular septum, that's expected. Now you decrease LV afterload. And how do you decrease LV afterload? Well, the wall pressure is your intra-aortic pressure minus thoracic pressure so if you add thoracic pressure to your lv outflow track you actually are decreasing your afterload so you're making your lv easily more easy to empty and get forward flow by adding intrathoracic pressure by doing so you increase contractility and there's probably some component of believe it or not is positive pressure acts as an LVAD because your left ventricle is contracting within a space that's getting pressure, that external pressure assists the LV to contract. And so more contractility, less afterload, you get more forward flow. We already mentioned about the dead space. So the important thing is that your cardiac output can go up or down depending upon whether you are more dependent upon reducing your afterload, or whether you're dependent upon maintaining preload, and that's what this flow sheet is meant to say. Really, it's just these two components. If you're preload dependent, and who in the hospital is preload dependent? Well, if you're if you're mildly hypovolemic and you're actually requiring venous return to your heart, and you reduce your preload, your cardiac output's going to drop, your O2 delivery is going to drop. Not good, and that's why you have to be cautious when you're intubating a patient that you think is in septic shock, and not just intubate them without actually trying to say, I know their preload's gonna drop with induction meds and with positive pressure ventilation. What can I do to prevent that from being so extreme, and how do I tailor it so that I don't harm them during the airway intervention? What would you do? Try to have volume loading ahead of time, be prepared for that, have good access, have a pressure bag ready and maybe have medications ready to reduce some of the expected hypotension in that short time period. Now, if they're afterload dependent, their cardiac output will go up, and that is typically someone with left ventricular failure, that after you intubate them or put them on positive pressure, they're gonna be improved. So it isn't that, positive pressure somehow does something different on a different patient, it does the exact same thing. It just depends on what their underlying physiology is, whether you've made changes that actually does this or does that for who they are. Got that part too? All right. So that's why for, for acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema, we'll talk about the data briefly in a, in a minute, non, uh, non-invasive has been shown to prevent intubation, give better outcomes, less mortality, less morbidity. Most people think, oh, the original data was on using CPAP only, so for congestive heart failure, you don't need to put them on BiPAP, just CPAP, because it's really the PEEP, the index pressure, that actually helps with the reducing preload and actually reducing afterload, which is what you want for someone with a failing LV. But in, some patients do benefit from having a, a inspiratory pressure, because if they've already been fatiguing because they've been to Kipnec for some time period, then actually adding an IPAP, an inspiratory pressure, may help them to feel more comfortable with their increased respiratory rate until they've caught up and actually are no longer in in pulmonary edema. So don't think that it's only CPAP, but actually BiPAP may be helpful for certain patients with congestive heart failure also. So the data is pretty convincing that they they get faster improvements in their saturations, their respiratory rate, and their relief of their dyspnea. And it's considered to be very safe, and not initially people thought, oh, you're gonna give these patients arrhythmias instead of just intubating them and sedating them and letting them rest, that you're gonna somehow make them have increased amount of cardiac ischemia and, and arrhythmias, and that's not the case. It's quite safe. Okay, so what types of interfaces do we use when we use non-invasive. These are nasal pillows. I don't typically use nasal pillows nor nasal CPAP for my patients when they actually are acutely dysmic. Why not? It's an easy answer. Why not? Why don't I use nasal? What's the first thing someone does when they're short of breath? Open their mouth. You'll never see somebody who's telling you that they're short of breath breathing through their nose only. It will not happen. So, for, for home, uh, home OSA, or for someone that actually is in, in the chronic stages of a condition where they know how to work with the CPAP and how they will know to actually keep their mouth closed while breathing and only open their mouth when they're eating or so forth, that's a different story. But for someone who has acute respiratory distress, you have to use something that's going to be with their, with their mouth. so. There's full face mask, and then there's what's called a face shield. Some people refer to this as a firefighter's mask, because it looks like what they wear when they actually have their uh, protective equipment when, when uh, they're going into uh, smoke environments. These are both good. They both work fine if this is fit to the correct size. Face shields people tolerate very well. It gives a much larger surface area against the face to fit to. It causes less pressure. The one thing that it does cover over the eyes so people do feel a little bit of kind of globe uh, squeeze, so to speak, but I've had patients that tolerated that much better. The helmet, that is a crazy thing. I had to look into, the. Uh, this is the Japanese literature to find this helmet. I think that would be the most claustrophobic thing I could ever have thought of, but it's listed out there. And then the terminology. Okay, so CPAP, continuous airway pressure by level, and then that would give us an IPAP, inspiratory pressure, an EPAP, expiratory pressure. And the only terminology that's a little bit important is compared to a ventilator where we talk about pressure support over PEEP, on, on non-invasive, you're actually listing the IPAP and EPAP. So if someone was on mechanical ventilation, right, it's pressure support over PEEP. So say this was pressure support over PEEP, would be 10 over five, while on non-invasive that would actually be 15 five, because it's IPAP, which is 15, and EPAP five. So just in case you're trying to convert someone from one to the other, you're speaking with respiratory therapists, you need to make sure that you're using the correct language when you're expressing what it is that you want the patient to be on. Okay, we talked a little bit about these indications, and the strongest ones are for CHF, CLPD, People often lump asthma together with COPD. The, the data for asthma is not as convincing. You can help patients with it, but you still have to be cautious. I kind of separate them when, when it is acute asthmatic compared to chronic COPD. Or. For community-acquired pneumonia in an immunocompromised patient, it actually can be helpful because it prevents the morbidity of having in the tracheal tube, which is typically having VAP. So in those patients, actually, it also is, is helpful. So neuromuscular disease, so it can be used very effectively in patients with uh, myasthenia crisis, uh, Guillain-Barre, ALS somewhat, although that is not a reversible condition, and that's the dilemma. For ALS, it may be part of actually their planning towards either tracheostomy or towards comfort care. Using it for DNR status is very acceptable if the patient's goal is relief of their dyspnea. You know that this can actually help them. So some places actually they'll say, "Oh no, we don't want uh, you know some hospice care." They say, "We don't, we don't like that." We don't. But in the hospital, if your goal of your palliative care group is relief of their symptoms, then it actually is very acceptable. So for OSA, Pickwickian syndrome, it's also very helpful for maintaining ventilation. Delayed sequence intubation, as your group talked about uh, delayed sequence intubation. Okay, so it's a very good idea in patients who even you believe are going to need mechanical ventilation to say, I want this patient to be optimized. I'm not just actually gonna put the face mask on and push meds and try to intubate them if I think they need to be optimized prior to passing the tube. Now, Obviously, that's not someone who's having respiratory failure. If they've had complete respiratory failure, respiratory arrest, you cannot do delayed sequence. This is someone that actually you would predict is actually having higher oxygen requirements. Someone who's, you're you're seeing the future and you know that they're heading towards that. You keep them upright, you keep them with what's gonna optimize their oxygenation, which may be non-invasive you think this person's septic, then obviously you're going to have a good access, you're going to have IV fluids established, reestablishing perfusion, everything that you can do to make the time period when you get to the intubation safer. And when you do that, using non-invasive, there are a certain percentage of patients that don't ever need to be intubated. So it's a reasonable thing to think about even in those patients that you're predicting will need to be eventually on mechanical ventilation. Post-extubation. So if someone gets extubated and actually develops some airway edema. They have a little bit of strider. In the meantime, you're actually giving them some racemic api. You've given them some steroids to help support them through this time period, stenting the airway open, because when patients have glottic edema, the harder they actually have pulling, the harder they actually breathe, the more they actually can be literally pulling more uh, tissue edema and making the whole sequence worse and worse, So supporting them non-invasive It's helpful, and then there are some patients that we just plan to extubate directly from invasive to non-invasive. It's a step down as compared to saying, you're on the vent, now fly. You have to do everything on your own. It's reasonable to say, hey, you've been on pressure support, you know, but you're still on pressure support of 10 over five. I'd rather you be extubated and now actually be doing a little bit more, have less of the risks of having the invasive airway, so I'm gonna extubate you directly to a non-invasive and then throughout the day, then start giving you time periods off the vents completely. It's a very reasonable thing to think about doing that and not think about, oh, now they're failing my extubation, and now I have to wheel the machine into their room and have everyone kind of get in the panic. To so say, I'm planning on extubating this person to non-invasive for four hours, and then off for two hours, and then back on for four hours, and so forth. Okay, so who are not good candidates? ARDS actually has a very high failure rate, so it is not considered to be a, a good plan unless it, as we talked about, for delayed sequence. You know this person is, is an ARDS and you know they're going to be intubated, but you want to have them optimized before doing so. Spinal cord injuries. So that's not a reversible weakness so it's not something helpful to say i'm going to just place this person on non-invasive they're not going to be getting better the things i mentioned myasthenia crisis scan beret those are reversible they're going to improve so for a time period to be supporting them is reasonable so severe shock multi-organ failure whether it's some sepsis or trauma not good candidates because of the fact as we said that we don't fully replace their work of breathing, we're not decreasing their oxygen consumption needs as sufficiently. So those patients really should be rested on a full support mode on the ventilator. And Nader Abashi told me this, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, a golf cart's not a Cadillac. So you can't expect to do what you do with with a mechanical ventilation with non-invasive. As long as you picture that, that you're not gonna be able to do the same thing. Now, is a golf cart good? Sure, when you're on the golf course or if you're Who is that? Who's the guy that has the ranch that drives around in golf carts? One of those directors on the, not Spielberg, the other guy, uh, John Lucas. Yeah, George Lucas, sorry. If you're on the George Lucas Ranch, yeah, you can drive your golf carts around. It's probably fine, but you wouldn't take it on the highway. So, same thing. You can't expect to do everything you want to do with the non-invasive that you would do with mechanical ventilation invasively. Okay, so the data now, the benefits certainly been proved to improve symptoms, reduce the rates of intubation. And if you reduce intubation, then the complications that we know go along with it are reduced also. So the morbidity comes from the sedation, having an endotracheal tube going through your glottis, which reduces your ability to protect it, so you develop VAP risks, as well as the RSI itself, as we said, can be fraught with complications. So you have reduced length of stay in the ICU, One thing is, the window of treatment for using non-invasive is a limited window, which is the other reason why I think some people may have a negative view of non-invasive, because if you wait till the person is on the verge of a complete respiratory collapse, and then you try to put them on BiPAP, it's too late. So early in the course is where you want to say, I identify this patient. I think they may be able to be helped by non-invasive while I'm working on their underlying condition, right? If it's uh, someone with CHF, you wouldn't just say, well, I'm going to put them on CPAP and that's it. You would say, hey, I need to actually get their blood pressure under control. I need to diurese them and so forth. So if you intervene early while you're fixing underlying condition, you have a much better chance of success. And the failure rate by studies is somewhat uh, up and down, depending on what the indications were. The 7%, in some studies as low as 5% failure rate for CHF. So 95% of the patients that get non-invasive do very well and do not need to go on to having mechanical ventilation. Higher for things, as we said, like asthma, and it becomes tremendously high for ARDS. Okay, contraindications. Obviously respiratory arrest, hemodynamically unstable because of what we said, it still does not replace fully their work of breathing, so the demands on the heart and the, and the uh, respiratory muscles. Someone is uncooperative or agitated, they're not good candidates for this. It's actually gonna be fraught with problems because most people think it's, oh, it's because they're trying to pull the mask off. No, well, that's not the problem. If they're uncooperated or agitated, it usually means that they're severely hypoxemic or, hypercarbic, um, and what would you do to someone who's agitated? That's the problem, is that you end up needing to typically restrain them or sedate them, and neither one of those is compatible with, with good noninvasive. If patients are aspiration risk, not good candidates either, because we also talked about the fact that it doesn't protect the airway, secretion clearance is reduced. Some patients, you just can't get an appropriate fit of the mask if they've had injuries to their face, burns to their face. And then, as we talked about, the low-grade obstructions from glottic edema can help. But if someone actually has a laryngeal mass or a foreign body in their airway, no, it's not gonna actually help and it would be certainly contraindicated. So how can you predict who's gonna do well? Well, someone is alert and cooperative strong cough. There is gratings for for the quality of cough, but in general, if you see actually the person contract their abdominal musculature and hear that actually it's a sound of a cough, not just actually have the person breathe out and kind of make a breathy sound, that's actually a very poor cough, but a strong cough. And then this other prealbumin and total protein, those are really your surrogates for strength and strong cough. If someone is very malnourished, has a very low prealbumin, that's actually a surrogate, meaning that they're going to be weak and not have a good cough. Lower Apache score, pH, that's actually above 7.1. Those are all good um, prognostic factors that they will do well with non-invasive. Then once you start someone, you really need to reassess them. Okay, that's where you can't just put them on it and say, I've done it and now I'll see them later, I'll see them tomorrow. You have to reassess the patient and see within a very short time period that they've improved. I always ask them, number one, just are you feeling better? Are you less short of breath? If the person's nodding their head, telling you that they're feeling better, that's very reassuring. Then you would like to have some objective data besides the subject. If you'd like to see the respiratory rate, saturations, end tidal CO2, maybe even an ABG, you'd like to see some improvements to go along with them telling you that they're feeling better. If they're telling you they're not feeling better, their CO2 is higher at this time period, that's where you really need to say, now what's my next plan? And maybe to change the settings, change the mask, or maybe to go right to intubation. So when you're initiating it, thinking about what's the optimal mask for this patient, make sure it's fitting correctly, and not just cinching the straps down tighter and tighter really if it's a correctly fitting mask it should take minimal to hold it against the face the low to high that means starting with a low pressure and going up patients that have never been on non-invasive before typically you have to start on a lower setting and as they get used to the feeling of it then you can begin titrating up on pressures patients that have had it before typically those chf recurrences or chronic copd flares Those patients, as as they see the machine coming towards them, will take the mask and pull it to their face, hold it to their face even before the straps are set. Those patients you may be able to set on a higher pressure to begin with, and as they're doing better, titrate down. So that's the high to low. Sedation. Opiates and benzos, although they're probably the more common sedations we use in the ICU, are poor choices because both of them take away respiratory drive. So how can you say, hey, their respiratory rate's improving, I don't know if it was because I gave them a slug of morphine, you know, or is the mentation worse? Is it because I've sedated them, or is it because their CO2 is higher? So we typically stay away from those classes and use either dexmetatomidine or ketamine, where it keeps their respiratory drive and their airway maintenance I- intact, and you can still examine them without worries. Where, where I practice now, it drives me crazy because they always say there's a, there's a protocol that for full face mask, the nurses must place a nasogastric tube. all okay? oh, they have to place a nasogastric tube. So the problem with that is well, first of all, the data is that unless you go over a peak inspiratory pressure of 25, lower esophageal sphincter actually stays competent. So you're not going to be bl- blowing their stomach up with air. A lot of people think, oh, I have to put it in because I'm going to be filling them with air. That's not true. I've never had somebody on, on pressures of that high. The, the peak I usually go to is about 16. Maybe every once in a while I've had someone at 18. That's about as high as I'll ever go. So it's really not necessary. The, the reason that uh, my hospital has a protocol, it's actually a very, it's a, it's a totally erroneous idea. They had a patient that actually was on full face BiPAP, hands restrained, vomited, and we executed the patient. Because if your hands are restrained and you vomit into your mask, what happens? Right, so that's why you have to have the patient who's cooperative and hands unrestrained. Because even a COPD patient, will need to cough, and when they need to cough, they actually pull the mask off their face, cough into a basin and grab some tissue and pull the mask back on. They need to be able to do so. So the nasogastric tube would not have prevented that patient from vomiting and, a- and aspirating. We know that actually the NG tube is good at decompressing liquid. It's not going to decompress food out of their stomach, particularly matter. it's not going to do so. So the patient needs to be able to pull the mask off when they can. So They do not require this and it is not somehow gonna make them fill up with air. The next thing you think of is how long to leave them on this. So you've you've done your 30 to 60 minute assessment, they're doing better, great. Now how long are you gonna leave them on it before you begin weaning them, okay? You need to plan on having a patient coming off non invasive at some point, okay? Even if it's to come off briefly and get humidified, whether you're giving them nebulized, nebulized treatments, humidified, just uh, O2, have them do some deep breathing and coughing to make sure they're clearing their secretions, then you can schedule them to go back on. It's okay as long as you don't think you're going to keep the person around the clock on, on non invasive. So when to intubate, as we said, if they don't tell you that they're feeling better, if they're subjectively saying they're feeling worse, no objective improvement, the mental status deteriorates, hemodynamic instability, impending respiratory arrest. And again, that's why I believe people have a some people have a negative feeling towards non-invasive because they've waited too long until this person has collapsed. So act before they actually have a complete respiratory arrest. The most common complications are relatively mild, and that's actually skin breakdown, typically on the bridge of the nose from where the mask actually may be riding. But if you pad that appropriately with some Epilex and make sure it's not cinched on too tight or give them scheduled breaks off, usually you can get away with not actually. The worst case scenario is nasal bridge breaks down, the patients actually rim of their cheeks break down, they get fat necrosis, looks pretty bad, but most of the time that can be avoided. Again, gastric distension just really isn't an issue because we don't use pressures that high. And if you place an NG tube, paradoxically now you have something bypassing the lower esophageal sphincter and they have more chance of getting insufflated with air and more chances of passive regurgitation. So avoid actually having an NG tube unless the person is requiring it for feeds or something else, having a, having a off tube. So we talked about the fact that secretion retention plugging can become a problem. So scheduled breaks with humidification and for coughing really is necessary. And then as we said, aspiration risk. So avoid sedation that we know will worsen it. Recognize if their mental status is declining and really avoiding restraints so they can take the mask off as necessary. And again, the reason why the mortality is increased when people have failed non-invasive isn't because the non-invasive has harmed them, it's because you've waited and the primary disease has progressed. So recognizing early is the best way to do it. Use it early, recognize early if they've succeeded or failed. And last thing I'll mention is the heated high flow nasal cannula. The proprietary name of the company that first made a device is Vapotherm. We have units here. I believe uh, medical ICU has units. I know the surgical ICU, cardiac ICU does. So, you know, non-humidified nasal cannula, you can't really go above about four or five liters before you actually start actually just getting turbulent flow. Not only is it uncomfortable in the person's nose, but it becomes ineffective. But if you actually have the, the gas saturated, because it's warm to body temperature and saturated fully to the water vapor threshold, you can actually tolerate flows up to 60 liters per minute with 100% FiO2. So by doing so, that amount of gas flow provides about five CMs of CPAP. So even though you don't have a tight-fitting nasal mask, you're providing some value of CPAP, which helps with that electasis, helps with VQ matching, helps some with work of breathing. And then that amount of gas flow going down your tracheobronchial tree to the level of the alveolus actually is providing some minute ventilation because the oxygen flow is displacing CO2, which is basically passively moving back up and out of their respiratory tree. So you've provided comfortable uh, ability to oxygenate with high flow, high FiO2, you've given them some value of CPAP and some improvement and they're actually minute ventilation. So there's a lot of very good things that you can do with minimal amount of risk here. These patients are comfortable, they're, they can eat and drink, they can talk, and I've had several patients that this was the only way I could keep the person oxygenated more than 100% non-rebreather, more than actually a, a BiPAP, I could keep the person oxygenated and comfortable better with the Vapotherm than with any other modality. So Think about it because it actually has a lot of, as I said, a lot of good utility um, with, as far as I can tell, pretty negligible risks. So our conclusions. We wanna use non-invasive. has benefits for certain select groups more so than others, CHF, CLPD, immunocompromised patients. We wanna think about it and apply it early. We wanna reassess early. We don't want to delay until they've actually failed because we know that the underlying condition has progressed. We want to stick with our sedations that actually do not cause any respiratory inhibition. And we want to consider high-flow nasal cannula for patients for certain specific patient types. That's actually my, my references that are included in the presentation. If anyone wants to uh, get a copy of this, I think, I think Mike has a copy. We can send it out. But please, uh, let's, if anyone has questions or comments, now or afterwards, and I want to thank Mike again for inviting me to be here. Is there starting parameters
0: for heart failure different from COPD or um, So the question
1: is, is the starting, starting settings for CHF, would that be different from COPD? Yes, so for heart failure, you really wanna be generous or maybe only expir- expiratory pressure. So if someone went in the flash pulmonary edema in front of you, it really would just be having a, having a CPAP value, a high CPAP value. As I said, if now if they come in saying, I've, all day I've been short of breath, I've been trying to call my doctor, you know, I've, been, I've been trying to take extra Lasix, whatever, and you think that this person's been breathing hard you know, for hours, then maybe you would have some IPAP, but it would still be high EPAP, with a small gradient in IPAP. So for those patients, it would be more like 12 over 8, right? Or maybe even 12 over 10, small gradient, high, high EPAP. While a COPD patient, it's probably going to be more of what you would typically think, you know, 12-6, you know, 10-5, where it's actually a gradient, maybe even you know, higher IPAP value because it's the work of breathing the muscles that you're trying to unload. And it's the gradient between the EPAP and IPAP, which actually is what's supplying the the respiratory muscles. So certainly there is going to be some tailoring. Now, but also, you don't set it and forget it. What you've done, and that's why I'm totally saying you're going to be in the room with this patient, because it's not something that you can just tell the respiratory therapist, and then walk away from it, because then what? You come back when the blood gas is back or you call, they come back when they're calling you to intubate the patient? I mean, you're obviously gonna be there and watch the patient and see how they're doing. I generally
0: start really low and
1: then I right up accordingly with the CO2 blood gases For first time use, I think you have to start low. People just don't tolerate the feeling of that pressure except at a, at a low setting. Now, I have had patients that I had this right off the bat, actually give them some, some ketamine um, just to put the mask on them. And once they actually started lightening from the ketamine and they had the mask on, they realized that they were feeling better. I did not have to continue an infusion. It was actually a very short time period. But some people, the feeling of the mask when they're acutely dysmic, it's a hard thing for them to kind of get in their mind that it is going to help while they kind of feel like they're getting smothered. So think about that, that you can use some sedation, again, Presidex or ketamine, to facilitate the initiation without committing yourself to meaning, oh, now I have to order a ketamine drip from the pharmacy because they're going to stay on it. No, once they're feeling better and you're talking to them and telling them, hey, this is helping. I, I you know, I'm adjusting this. They may actually tolerate it much, much better. Uh,
0: one, one comment on that. Um, you know, uh, so a couple things. We, we don't do anything in medicine, or we shouldn't really do anything in medicine that isn't goal directed, right? And you say, yeah, don't set and it, forget it. We don't do that with sedation. We go for a goal RAS. Okay, for pressors, we go for a gold map or whatever. The uh, same thing when you, when you're setting. Um, so you, you brought up a uh, cardiogenic pulmonary edema. It's primarily an oxygenation problem. We want to maintain the definitely the end expiratory pressure, but that, that inspiratory pressure um, is as Joe mentioned for to decrease work of breathing is is largely and to decrease O2 consumption largely in, in the setting of somebody who's distressed. But sometimes those tidal wants can be excessive as well. So you want to adjust. So I'll go BiPAP initially and I'll adjust, um, titrate that inspiratory pressure so I'm not over inflating as well. So, you know, you're always being there at the bedside is really integral to delivering proper care. Um, no, absolutely,
1: so. Mike. Thank you. I appreciate that comment because I, I agree. And so, you know, when I round in the ICU, I. I change the vents constantly. Now, you know, again, I'm not advocating that as a resident or a fellow because that's a little bit of a different situation, but I pretty much will request for the respiratory therapist to round with us. And so, because I feel like I can't place an order and then come back hours later and then somehow see if it's made an improvement or not, because to me, mechanical ventilation is something that you actually need to see in live time. So when I'm making setting changes or doing recruitment or weaning, I want to be there when it's taking place. And I feel the same exact way with using non-invasive.
0: And one, one other comment um, to, in, in terms of uh, arrest and respiratory arrest, the delayed se- sequence intubation idea. Um, I mean, it can be uh, provided in a variety of ways, but one thing that for those of you that have intubated with me and somebody's already on it, I mean, I, they're, Positioned. I, I have non-invasive the whole time, BiPAP the whole whole time typically, uh, pre-oxygenating, blow, you know, getting them. They're usually acidemic as well, trying to uh, relieve some of that with the minute ventilation. But I will even I will induce them. Um, I mean, I'll I'll do RSI on them when it comes time. And instead of bagging, in, as you'll often see anesthesia. I'm, there are any anesthesiologists here? I'm uh, happy to talk about. It. But the. Uh, uh, instead of bagging um, and, and delivering some unknown tidal volume, you know, why, why are we doing that? Why, why can't we just maintain it on, on uh, BIPAP? We can look on the waveforms themselves when the patient stops breathing, then you know to take it off and go for the intubation. And, and we can also deliver the amount of uh, support to that patient um, in terms of uh, tidal volumes to, to achieve, again, our goal of minimizing the acidosis of that patient as we're setting up properly maintaining a positive end expiratory pressure um, prior to intubation to buy you some time when you actually uh,
1: you, you can also actually use it to help facilitate awake bronchoscopy i i learned that from some uh, pulmonologists that i used to work with um, and it actually works quite well to actually maintain uh, oxygenation and some assistance during an awake bronchoscopy. So you can also consider that. That's what actually. That's a. That's a photograph of.
0: Yeah. And vapotherm them for short. Sure. I mean, to, to take someone's vapotherm off prior to intubation makes zero sense. I mean, it, it's it's in their yeah. nose. Let it, let it go and, and you know you
1: can, you can intubate while on vapor sure. in The nose let it go. That. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? No? Well, thank you very much for your attention and uh, for the invitation.